listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Uh, we're in two, uh, Matthew chapter 2. If you're our guest, uh, glad you are here. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors. And we started a few weeks ago, conveniently, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be working through that gospel for the next year. But obviously, we're in that section that is the Christmas narratives. And so we have been walking through, and we are now finishing up chapter two today. I was asked this week, um, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Uh, and, or what are your favorite Christmas movies? And so, you know, I'm kind of a traditional guy. So you got Elf, you cotton-headed niggy muggins, right? right? You got uh, The Christmas Story, which is my generation. It's classic. You know, you'll shoot your eye out. I had a Red Ryder BB gun. Uh, didn't shoot my eye out, but I shot some of my friends uh, with that. That's, we did that back then. That was dumb. Don't shoot people with BB guns, people. Um, Charlie Brown, Christmas, classic, right? This is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, of course. Uh, he is a humble bumble. I mean, it's a classic. Frosty, I could care less about. Mel the way, I don't care. Frosty's done. I mean, in my, you know. I don't like snow, and I don't like Frosty, so whatever. And then there's the 80s classics, Gremlins, Die Hard, great Christmas films, um, classics. But for me, the ultimate, uh, my favorite still is the classic, It's a Wonderful Life. My favorite Christmas movie of all time. Not the colorized version. Uh, can't stand that. The, the, the old as it was, 1946. It's a 75th year anniversary. And, and kind of just reading about that film this, this week, it's interesting that when that film came out, it was kind of a dud. It lost a ton of money at the movies, at the, at the theater, box office. They lost a lot of money. It was panned by critics. In fact, one critic, New York Times critic said, the weakness of this picture from the reviewer's point is the sentimentality of it. It's illusory concept of life. Mr. Capra's turkey dinner's philosophy, while emotionally gratifying, doesn't fill the hungry pouch. That was the, that was the response. It was nominated for a couple Oscars. It won one Oscar, but it won for the, the technical something for the snow. It went for Clarence getting his wings or Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed's first movie. It won because they came up with a new kind of snow. All right, that's why it won. And it was just pain. It was kind of like, eh. Until years go by and now It's a Wonderful Life is not considered one of just the greatest, you know, uh, Christmas movie. It is in the top 10, top 20 movies of all time. It's considered a classic. You know, over time, after people step back they realize the value and the uh, excellence of this story. And so now it is considered a classic. And that's how I read this text we're going to be in this morning. It's not super Christmassy. Unless Die Hard's a Christmas movie, then it's very Christmassy because this is like Die Hard. It is not one of those feel good, you, you, didn't, you came to see Jesus in the manger with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You, you came to see that. This is not that. But when you step back and you give it a little room, just like it's a wonderful life, you can see, oh, wait, this is Christmas. This is a classic. In fact, this is the ultimate Christmas story. It is the ultimate story on love, even though the word love is never found in it. Right? And today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and, and so the, the encouragement and challenge for me is to present Love, and when you read this text, you're going to be like, if you read ahead, you're like, how is he going to get love out of this one? We will see. We will see as we go on. But what I want us to see is, initially, 
when you read this, you don't think this is very encouraging and glove and Christmassy, but I want you to step back and see it, just like it's a wonderful life. And in doing so, you'll see it truly is a wonderful life. It truly is the greatest story ever told. So Matthew chapter two, verses 13 to 23. And, and, and when, here, here's kind of the, the challenge for me. The reason why we don't see this as Christmassy and love is because we're not first century Jews. Remember, this book, the book of Matthew, was written to a Jewish audience. And so they are going to, and if you see things through their eyes, when they hear this narrative, they're going to put some dots, connect some dots. That for us, because of our familiarity with the Old Testament, is really not real, real good. We, we miss them. And so I don't want you to be frustrated if you're like, oh, I didn't ever see that. I never knew that. Because as you study the Bible more, these connections will become clearer. This is why we are to be people of the word. But I'm going to do my best to show you what they would see as they are reading and hearing this narrative uh, and try to get in their minds a little bit. Because this, this information that's given is only found in this gospel. It's not found in Mark, Luke, or John because this is the gospel written to Israel. And he wants them to see uh, these things and make these connections. Because ultimately, this is a story of why did Jesus come? It answers the big why question. Why? Why is Jesus here? Why did he leave heaven? Why did he leave his throne? Why did he become a man? Why did he live this life? Why did he do all these things? That's why it's the wonderful life. That's why it's the greatest story ever told. And so let me read it. And it's real simple text. It breaks into three kind of dark stories. But at the end of each one, this is where Matthew wants us to see. Pay attention. He's going to make a statement like, this was to fulfill the prophets. Or the prophets said this. Or this fulfilled this. That's where he's zooming in. When you see that repetition, he wants to draw your attention to that. And that's where we're going to look. And that's why this is important for us today. All right? So where we pick up from last week, the we not three, not kings came from the east uh, and they worship at the feet of Jesus, and they give gold and frankincense and myrrh, and then they have a dream. Don't go back to Herod, go the other way, and so they do, and uh, that's where we pick the text up. The Magi have just left. They're going home. Mary's like, that was a long day, Uh, a lot of company. Joseph's like, yeah, you did a great job. Let's go to bed. That's where the narrative picks up, all right? Let me read it all. Now, when they had departed, that is the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Again, here's what's highlighted. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Here it is again. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child, his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And again, here it is. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be called 
a Nazarene. Merry Christmas. Such a, such a happy text, right? What is Matthew doing here? What is he trying to show this audience about Jesus? Let's look. Let's kind of jump in a little bit more detail and unpack. Here's the first scene. Now, when the Magi departed, an angel of the Lord shows up. Anytime an angel shows up in a dream to Joseph, his life gets rocked, right? It just wrecks his old plan. And here's dream number two of four uh, that's going to rock his world. So the angel shows up and says, and there's an urgency. Get up, flee, run. I mean, they go to bed, they're tired. They've had all these magi. They're cleaning up all the spices everywhere and gold and frankincense, right? Wrapping paper. Mary's had a long day. Joseph had a long day. They go to sleep and and he has another dream and there is an urgency. Get up and do it now. Get out of here now. Rise, take the woman and get out with the baby. And then the word flee, it's a word that we, uh, the fugo in the Greek, we get our English word fugitive and it's a continuous sense. Keep running, flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod is coming to kill the baby. Now, I I don't know about you, but I don't know how Joseph's feeling in this moment when the most powerful man in the world with all the resources in the world who lives five miles away is trying to kill my son and probably me just because, right? And so he does what we would do, right? He, Mary, get up. Right, he rose and he took her. Mary, and he, you know, he's like, "Don't take that." Take, you know, we're, we don't need to take everything. Get the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but everything else we can leave, and we're going to Egypt. Right, and then we don't have any details of their life in Egypt, where they lived in Egypt, how long they were in Egypt. We do know there was a big Jewish population in Egypt at that time, so there is is some uh, nation of Israel there, but we don't know anything except for they go, and they stay until Herod dies, and he dies in four BC. Um, but here, here's what we need, need to ask. Why Egypt? I mean, why Egypt of all places? Because, again, this is not like modern day where you have America's Most Wanted and you have the show and the posters, you know, wanted Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus, right? Born in a manger. They don't post that everywhere in town. The only people that know what Joseph really looks like is the, the, is the shepherds, I guess, and the magi, and they're gone. So why not go just to Tyre and Sidon up on the coast or go to Damascus or go hide somewhere else outside Bethlehem? Because they'd be pretty much easy to just blend in. Why Egypt of all places, right? He tells us, because this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out of the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. If you look in your Bible, you probably, if you have a little, you know, one that has like cross references, you see a little A or B there and it says, Hosea 11.1. And some of you are like, what is Hosea? And why is it, there's 11 of them, right? The book of Hosea is an Old Testament prophet that probably most of us are not familiar with, if we're really honest. Didn't do your quiet time, your Advent reading in Hosea this morning. Uh, It is a minor prophet. It's called minor prophets because of the length of the prophet, not because he was like, "Eh, he's kind of a minor league prophet. And Isaiah, he's a major prophet. It's just the length of the book, right? And his his real interesting story, it's worth your read. Hosea was told by God, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And so he goes and he marries a prostitute named Gomer. Great name. It's probably why she wasn't married because her name was Gomer, okay? And nobody marries a Gomer. Uh, don't name your daughter Gomer, please. Uh, and if your daughter is named Gomer, it's a great name. I mean, it really is a great name. 
So he goes and marries Gomer, and he has a couple kids. And God says, okay, I want you to name your kid Lo-Ami, Lo-Ruhama, not my people, and no mercy. Great little names, right? And then Gomer decides, I don't really like being a mom and a wife, and so she runs back to her old career. And then one day God says, Hosea, I want you to go get your bride. And so he goes to the market where his wife is being sold in humiliation, and he buys his wife back. He redeems his wife, and he says, now you are going to be faithful. And the whole book is really a picture of God's relationship with Israel, how he was faithful, and he pursued her, and she was unfaithful, and he loved her. And even though she ran off, that he went after her, and he actually bought her and brought her in. That's what the book is about. And in chapter 11, Hosea is recounting God's love for the nation of Israel. And he says this in verse one. And when, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you read that on the surface, you're like, oh, he's talking about what God did with Pharaoh and in the book of Exodus, right? That's what we re- recounted back in, in the uh, spring when we went through the book of Exodus. And you would be correct. It doesn't seem anything futuristic about that statement. No, out of Egypt, I called my son. He's referring to Egypt and Israel and what was going on there. But this is where we got to get our thinking caps on. This is where we got to dig a little bit and try to get in their minds. What Matthew is doing is he is making connections between Israel and their Messiah, right? That we might miss, but they get. He's showing the relationship between Jesus, the Messiah, and the nation of Israel, both we're called God's son. Jesus is obviously God's son. But Israel, back in the book of Exodus, remember, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Israel is my firstborn, my son. They're both God's son. They both left the land of Israel and went down to Egypt. Why? Because their life was in danger. The nation of Israel had to go to Egypt. Why? Because there was a famine and Joseph was there to save them, right? Jesus has to leave Israel and go to Bethlehem. Why? Because Herod is after him. Both of them came back out of Egypt. They exodused, right? They left and went back where? To the land. What happened when Israel, the first thing happened when they leave the land? They go through the water and into the wilderness for 40 years where they are tested. What happens to Jesus when he gets back in the land? This is kind of spoiler alert next week. He goes into the water of baptism and then into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. You see how Matthew is connecting the dots between Messiah and Israel? And and the point is this, right? Why does he come in the flesh? Why does he identify with his people? Because he's not bringing them out of Egypt from slavery, from Pharaoh. He's bringing something else. And this is the first reason I want you to see it's a wonderful life. This is the first reason I want you to see what he is doing. Jesus came because he is bringing us a new exodus, a different type of exodus, Because even though he's identifying with the nation of Israel in one way, there is a significant difference between Jesus and the nation of Israel, right? Israel was brought out by Moses, who was a good dude, but he wasn't perfect. Jesus is a better Moses. That's the book of Hebrews. And where Israel went into the wilderness and grumbled and complained and failed miserably, Jesus went into the wilderness and what? Defeated Satan, resisted temptation, and he came out of the wilderness victorious. Israel in the Old Testament is constantly called the fruitless vine. Fruitless vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And so Matthew is connecting these dots 
and showing he had to go down into Egypt just like Israel did because he had to, he had to come out victorious where they failed. And what God has been doing from the beginning is, is he's creating a new exodus, not one out of slavery from Pharaoh and just a hard life. He's taking us out of darkness into life. He's taking us out of sin into, into forgiveness, a new exodus. Why? Because like Isaiah says, we, the people, were walking in darkness and we have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, for them light has shown. Why? Unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. And he's going to sit where? On David's throne to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Right? This is why Messiah comes, a new exodus, not from just slavery, but from sin and death, bringing us life and hope and peace and joy and all the things we've been talking about. This is why we sing things at Christmas like, long lay the world in sin and arrow pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That's why I don't lead worship here, I teach. <laughs> but that's why we sing that, because you were in the world of sin and arrow pining. And you needed light to lead you to himself. That's why Messiah came. A new exodus. A new spiritual one. That's what Matthew is pointing them to. That's what he's alluding to that will become clearer as God's gospel unfolds. That's the first first thing. Because it truly is a wonderful life. Let's look at the next narrative. Verse 16. Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, he did what? Became furious. I don't know how long it was. Probably not long. Like, Newman, Magi, right? So what does he do? He sends all his soldiers down to Bethlehem and he kills every child two and under, which is why we think Jesus was around one to two years old because they knew when the star had appeared and he had the time frame, right? And, and I know you've kind of heard stories, all oh, the thousands of kids. Bethlehem was probably about 250, 300 people total at this time. And so the most uh, number of, of children probably doesn't make it any less wicked, but it's probably talking 10 to 15 boys, which is still tragic and satanic and wicked and evil, right? But what you get here is a sneak peek, kind of a behind the curtains uh, look at, at the battle that has been raging since the beginning of time between God and Satan, where Herod is just another pawn in a satanic attack, trying to thwart what God has been doing from the beginning. This is what Satan's been doing since creation, God creates perfect garden, perfect world, Adam and Eve, perfect everything. What does Satan do? He tempts man to rebel against God. And then God promises, okay, one will come from from humanity that will redeem and rescue. So what does he do? It's Genesis 6. He tries to corrupt the human race with the Nephilim, right? So that God has to eventually destroy everybody and start again with Noah. And then he makes a promise through a guy named Abraham, your son through Sarah, he's gonna bless all nations. So what what does Satan try to do? He tries to get Abraham to sell off his wife. Twice. And then to marry her servant and have another kid and try to go around that way. God still comes through. And then when the people go down to Egypt, what happens? Pharaoh tries to wipe out all the boys. We're going to wipe out the nation of Israel, right? Fails there. And then when they finally do get into the land, God promises that through the line of Judah, through this line, will be the Messiah. So what does Satan do? He tries to get the, the Israelites to intermarry with all the Moabites and the Canaanites so that they, there's no more distinction in tribes in the nation of Israel. Because if there's no Judah, there doesn't have to be a Messiah. God protects them there. 
and they go into captivity. And then there's a king that wants to destroy all of the Israelites and God raises up a woman named Esther to save everybody. And then you have Herod and Bethlehem trying to kill. And then you have in a few chapters, Satan trying to tempt Jesus to sin. And then you have Satan enter into Peter, his best friend and say, you don't need to go to the cross. It's just constantly raging even when they put him and nail him to the cross, that Satan thinks he wins, but what happens on Sunday? Jesus comes out of the grave and Revelation says this, the lion of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He wins. But we get a little sneak peek at this battle that has been raging and he kills all these poor little boys. And here's why. What does Matthew say? This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice weeping, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. To quote from Jeremiah, obviously he says prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31. And this is one of those prophecies, again, that has a dual fulfillment, just like a virgin shall conceive and his name shall be called Emmanuel. It's a dual fulfillment. So there's an initial fulfillment. And the initial fulfillment was when the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom away. And Jeremiah says, there's going to be weeping in Ramah. Rachel, she's the matriarch of Israel, right? She was the mother of Benjamin and she's the mother of Joseph. And she actually was buried right around Bethlehem. And it pictures her as the representative of all the moms of Israel, weeping as the Assyrians take their four-year-old boys and their 16-year-old boys and their husbands and chains off to captivity, never to be seen again. There is a mourning and a wailing because of that. But the ultimate fulfillment is here in Bethlehem where there's a weeping because all these mamas no longer have their baby boys because of what Herod has done. And again, Matthew is is showing how Jesus and the nation of Israel, they're linked. And here's here's again where you have to do a little bit more digging, a little bit more reading, where we're not familiar. Most of us, again, Jeremiah is a long prophet. And we get to about chapter 12 and we're like, I think I get it. God's mad at Israel, right? They've been unfaithful. But But these folks would know Jeremiah chapter 31, They would be familiar with it. And it's actually not a Debbie Downer chapter of sadness. It's actually a chapter of hope because you have Rachel weeping, but then the rest of the chapter is, but God will bring them back. But God will rule and reign. But even though the throne of David is gone and there's gonna be nobody on it for a long time, there's a day coming when there will be someone again on the throne of David. And Jeremiah 31, some of you are familiar with this is one of the most famous chapters in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's the chapter of the promise of the new covenant. And what he says later on, after all this, there's gonna be weeping. When Messiah comes, this is what's gonna happen. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, out to the land of Egypt, but my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law on them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. This is what's going on. There's gonna be weeping, but ultimately there's gonna be joy. There's gonna be death, but ultimately out of death, I am gonna bring life. 
The throne is empty, but it is going to be full. This is why it's a wonderful life, because God brings us on a new exodus, but he also, through Messiah, Jesus gives a new covenant. He establishes something new, not stone tablets. Why does he need a new covenant? Because all y'all are commandment breakers. How many of y'all kept the Ten Commandments this morning? None of you. None of you. You've already broken at least three because you couldn't keep it. That was the weakness of the old covenant. Nobody could keep it. So we needed a new covenant. Well, how are we gonna get a new covenant? It's going to be, what what does Jesus say the night he is betrayed? This is my blood, the blood of what? The new covenant. And he's gonna take death and out of death, he is going to bring life. And what Matthew is doing, and again, he hasn't unpacked. This is just kind of like sneak preview. You know, it's kind of dropping hints because the story is going to unfold the gospel, but he's dropping hints. This is what God has been doing. He's going to take weakness and he's going to bring joy. This is, he's going to take death and bring life. This is why he came, right? Even through sadness. I, I was reading this week, there was a poem that John Piper wrote back in the 80s called The Innkeeper. Some of you read it before. It's a powerful poem and it's a, you know, not a true story, but it's a, what could have happened uh, as Jesus, the story is Jesus going back to Bethlehem two weeks before the cross and he meets the innkeeper. The innkeeper who the night Herod's soldiers came in had a wife and two boys and it's their interaction. It's longer than I have time to read, but let me just read a portion of this because this, this gets at the heart of it. It's worth, again, your read. You can actually listen to him read it. It's a powerful poem. This is the innkeeper speaking to Jesus. He says, we got a reputation here that night. Nothing at all to fear and that we thought it was of God. But in one year, the slaughter squad came from Herod. And where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, no time to run, no time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smashed through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to this place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. Young man, have you ever lost a son? The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head but couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less, spare not for aught nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here and if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house, but Lord, I had my hands and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave, oh Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go and so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost of housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. And then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live and other die. God's ways are high and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night 
you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. That's why there's weeping, but yet there's life. That's why Messiah came. And there is a reason why Herod couldn't touch him. You know why? Because it wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. There was going to be a time 30 years later when the father led him to a garden and then said, I'm off, hands off, he's yours. For he steps away and lets the wrath our sin deserve. And he actually pours out his own wrath on his son. There's a day when he ceases to protect his son. There was a time, there was an hour, but it wasn't yet, but it was coming. And that is why Messiah came to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, for the new covenant in his blood so that you and I could be with him forever. And you have to step back, y'all, and see. It's, if you're in a minute, it doesn't seem like a wonderful life. But when you step back, you're like, oh, I see it. A new exodus, a new covenant. And one more thing. Let's close this narrative out. But when Herod died in 4 BC, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream Joseph, again, every time an angel shows up, his world gets rocked. We're just getting settled here. Rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who sought his life are dead. And so they rose and took the child and his mother and they went back to the land of Israel. They exodused, just like Israel, and they go back. Only there's a man named Archelaus. When Herod died, he had three sons that were divided the kingdom. And Archelaus was over Judea in Bethlehem in that area. Uh, and Archelaus was a nasty dude, just like his dad. First, one of his first acts of coming to power, there was 3,000 men riding in the temple. He had them all killed, 3,000, one day. Okay, that's the kind of guy he was. So Joseph hears, yeah, I don't think I'm going to Bethlehem. And sure enough, an angel confirms it. Uh, he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father, Herod. He's afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, which is in the north. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. This is the first mention in the Gospel of Matthew of the city of Nazareth, okay? Now we get Luke, we get Mary is living in Nazareth and that's where she's from, but this is Matthew's first mention of Nazareth. And they go to Nazareth. And so here's the key phrase again, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So here's the problem with that statement. I will give you $100 if you can find a quotation in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. You can get your little phone out, Google it right now. Let me, spoiler alert, it's not there. Because I would not give you $100 like that easily, okay? Again, if you look at your little cross references in your Bible, you know, in verse 15, you get a little A and it says, out of Egypt I call myself, Hosea 11.1, look at that. And then you go to verse 18, there's a little B. Oh, look, Jeremiah 31, 15, yeah. There's, you go to the, verse 23, there's nothing. There's no little cross-reference because it's not there. There is no statement in the Old Testament that says 
he will be called a Nazarene. So what's going on here? Did Matthew miss it? Did he make a mistake? Okay, a couple things going on here. And this is why you got to be a first century Jew to really grasp it. Uh, let me kind of unpack it in kind of layman's terms, okay? Uh, there's a couple little kind of very cultural things going on here. Notice, first off, that it says, so that it was spoken by the prophets, plural. Before, it's been singular. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Hosea. Now it's plural. So what he's not only saying is, not only the prophets say it, there's multiple times that it said he would be called a what? Nazarene. And we think when we saying he'd be called Nazarene, we just go right to what well, that means he's from Nazareth, which is true. But there's something a little bit deeper going on there. It's, it's a little Hebrew kind of humor, but understanding that what's going on. So here's two, two big ideas. The first one's this. If you lived in Israel in that day, the odds are you probably never heard of this town of Nazareth, right? Because it was just such an insignificant, out-of-the-way place. A couple hundred people maybe live in there. It's kind of like when I went to the Citadel, came from Philadelphia, down to the Citadel, and had all these buddies in my company that were from rural South Carolina towns. Like my one buddy's like, yeah. I, I said, where are you from? I'm from Honeyapath. Honeyapath, really? One guy from 96, South Carolina. There's literally a town called 96, South Carolina. There's a town called Clemson, believe it or not, called South Carolina, right? I mean, all these folks from these little towns that you never heard of. Even if you're from South Carolina, the odds of you hearing about, you know, McCormick, you're like, where is that? More so then. If you heard of Nazareth, you're like, yeah, it's, you don't want to go there and nothing good comes out of there and ain't sending kids to Harvard from Nazareth. That's the idea. It's insignificant. No one's heard of it. And it's even looked down upon, which is why when Nathaniel and Philip, two of the disciples, Philip goes to Nathaniel and is like, we have found the Messiah. We found him. He goes to his brother. And Nathaniel's like, really? Tell me, tell me about it. Jesus of Nazareth. What is his response? You are kidding me. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says, come and see. And so they start walking to Jesus and Jesus sees these two brothers coming. And this is a great scene. And then Jesus calls out and says to Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite with him there is no guile. He's, he's, what he's saying is, this guy speaks his mind. This guy tells the truth. He don't lie. Nathaniel's like, dude, I never met you. How, how do you even know anything about me? He says, oh, before Philip came to you when you were under that tree, I saw you. And he immediately gets on his face. He says, you are the son of God. You are the king of the universe. Jesus says, just because I saw you before that, you're going to see a lot more than that, buddy. Let you just wait. But it's this idea. He says, he speaks the truth. Nazareth is, is trash. It just is nothing good. I agree. That's the view of Nazareth in that day. In the book of Acts, when they say they're from the sect of the Nazarenes, it's a, it's a derogatory thing. He's a redneck, hick town, nobody. In fact, the irony of that is this. The, Nazareth is a rejected town. Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he is rejected by the ones that everybody rejects. That's how rejected he is. He's not even accepted amongst the losers. And that is the point, All right? Is there any Old Testament texts and prophets that say he's gonna be rejected? He's gonna be a nobody? He's gonna be a nothing? Oh, there's plenty. 
but there's more even. Isaiah 11, chapter 1 is, is a messianic prophecy that says there shall come from a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The word branch there is the Hebrew word natser. It's what we would say in the Greek, Nazarene. In fact, the word Nazarene means branch. And there's this allusion to, you know, you've cut down a tree in your yard and you got a little stick that comes out the side. It's like, oh, aren't you cute? You're trying to grow another tree. Ain't gonna happen, right? But what the prophet's saying is, oh, there's gonna come a little, whoop, little sprout, a little branch, a little knots there. It's gonna seem like nothing. But go read 11, Isaiah chapter 11 and see what happens to that branch. <laughs> Becomes the king of the universe. And there's this, this kind of wordplay, this kind of, He's going to come, he's going to look like nothing. He's going to be a reject from nowhere. There's all sorts of prophecies in the Old Testament, how Jesus will be crushed, that he would be uh, a man of sorrows, that he would be pierced, that he would be laughed at. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he's a nothing from nowhere, a nobody, but he's going to become king. That's why it's prophets, because the, the prophets said he's going to be, come from nowhere. If I put 10 Israelite men from the first century on this stage and one of them was Jesus of Nazareth, you would not pick him out. You wouldn't be like, oh, that guy looks like messianic. He's definitely Messiah. You would never be able to pick him out from his externals because he was so blah, so ordinary, so you would never think it. And that is the point of he shall be a Nazarene. You wouldn't pick him, you wouldn't spot him, but he is the king. And this is the third idea of what Jesus is doing and what Matthew is pointing to. There's a new kingdom. And it's a different kingdom than, than what's going on. It's, it's an upside down kingdom, which is what Jesus is going to do. He's gonna say, you wanna be great? You gotta be the least. You wanna save your life? You, better, you gotta lose your life. It's better to give than receive. Blessed are the peacemakers, the poor, the humble, the gentle. It's, it's a completely different kingdom because what we look at is I want Saul, sharp, tall, big, handsome. I want that. And God says, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. He says, the, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God, right? That's what this kingdom is, right? That's what this kingdom is. And that's why it's a wonderful life. This, and I, what I love about there's a lot of things I love about Jesus, obviously, but one of the things that's really cool that stood out in my study this week is, you know, when, when the apostle Paul has been persecuting the church, before he's Paul, when he's Saul, he's persecuting the church and Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse and blinds him. You know what he says to him? He doesn't say, Saul, I am the king of the world. I am the Lord of lords, king of kings. Every knee will bow, every tongue will fast. You know what he says? Saul, I, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He's not ashamed of his Nazarethness, just like he's not ashamed of us, which is why he identifies with us, which is why he gives us a new exodus, a new covenant, and a new kingdom. And here's the key. This is why we need a new kingdom, because everybody is welcome, but there's only one way. You gotta humble yourself under this king. You, you can't keep the law. You can't keep the, the, the commandments. You can't love enough, be kind enough, give enough money. There's only one way into this kingdom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you've got to humble yourself under this king, even though he was humble. So you've got to get on your face before a Nazarene. And that's why so many people miss the kingdom of heaven, because they're not willing to humble themselves under the king. And I would ask you this morning, have you, 
Have you experienced a new exodus from sin? Have you experienced a new covenant in his blood? Have you bowed your knee to worship this king like the Magi? Because Herod didn't. It's the question you gotta ask, right? Because it's the only way. It is the only, it's the reason, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's it. And we got, and you say, well, where's the love, Bill? This is kind of a dark text. Here's the love. And we sang it, and Gardner stole my thunder before the sermon and read all my verses, but I'm gonna read them to you again. Why does God send Jesus for a new exodus, a new covenant, and a new kingdom? Why? Because God so loved the world. There's your love. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You got all three in there. You got a new exodus, forgiveness of sins. You got Jesus dying. There's a new covenant. And then you have eternal life. There's the new kingdom. All in this verse. There's the love. Same with the first John 4. Again, stealing my thunder. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, as the atoning sacrifice, as a substitute for your sins. That's the story. Now you gotta get back to see it, right? Because in the middle of it, when George Bailey is lost it all and he's just standing before, you know, the grumpy old man and he's got the cheap insurance policy and he's lost it all, it doesn't seem like it's a wonderful life. And even after he finally, Clarence gets his wings and he's, you know, he realizes it's been a wonderful life, he's still broke until the end. And remember, a, a, a man is truly rich who has friends, right? You see at the end, it's a wonderful life. In the middle of it, you don't see it. But when you step back, you see, this is what God has been doing the whole time, y'all. From Genesis to Revelation. This, the Bible's not 66 different stories about 66 different things. From the beginning to the end, it is about God who is redeeming lost man. And the apex to this point was Jesus coming as a man, dying on a cross, coming out of the tomb. That was the climax until the king returns, then that's the ultimate climax. And this whole book from beginning to end is about that. Matthew's just one little snippet. And that's why he draws you into it. Don't miss that this Christmas. The new Exodus, the new covenant, and the new kingdom. That's what it's all about. That is truly the wonderful life. And we are going to have the privilege right now to celebrate that, to ult- the ultimate picture of what Jesus gives us, right? The, the, the table, the Lord's Supper, tangible reminders, more so than a present under a tree, tangible reminders, this is my body, sinless, perfect, broken for you. Do this remembrance. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance. That's the privilege we have this morning. And so my prayer is you'll be able to sit in that to know how much are you loved? You were loved so much that God allowed his own son to be slaughtered so that you could have life. That's how much you were loved. That's how much you were loved. And so if you this morning, if you've experienced the new exodus and the new covenant and the new kingdom, if you have put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, whether you're a member of CBC, you're visiting, you're whatever, we invite you to participate and celebrate. If you have not, if you're like, I don't know if I get this, I don't know if I grasp this, I don't know, then we just ask you to to abstain this morning because these these elements picture something that is true only for the believer. Now, we would encourage you today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your voice. Today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But if you're not there, just let let it pass, it's fine. No judgment, 
right? We'd love to have a conversation with you. We'd love to offer you uh, the knowledge of how to know Christ. But you don't need to, you know, feel like, oh, I'm at church, I need to do this, right? So just let it go. But for those who have, this is your celebration. This is your Christmas gift. This is the love of God tangibly felt in your hand. So what we're gonna do is we ask that, that the, those who have come and just pass out the elements and I'll stay up here. And after just a few moments, we'll celebrate together. Uh, I'll come back up and we will celebrate this table together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the uh, reminders of your love, the body and the blood of Christ. I pray that as we, your church, think on it, we celebrate it, that you would uh, help us to do so in a way that glorifies you and, and really just points us back to you. And for those who doubt your love, that don't feel loved, they would look down in their hands and be reminded of what Christ has done for us to bring us out of slavery, to bring us into a new covenant with your relationship and to bring us one day into your presence uh, forever and ever. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.